Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Welcome to today's book launch, An Evolving Paradigm of Agricultural Mechanization Development, How Much Can Africa Learn from Asia? I'm Katarla Taylor, Events Manager at IFPRI, and I will moderate today's launch. Thank you for joining this virtual event live, and thank you to those of you who are watching this recording. To participate in our Q&A session that will follow the presentations, please submit your questions on ifpre.org or through our various social media channels, including Facebook, LinkedIn, or by using the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. Agricultural mechanization in Africa south of the Sahara, especially for small farms and businesses, requires a new paradigm to meet the needs of the continent's evolving farming systems. Can Asia, with its recent success in adopting mechanization, offer a model for Africa? The book that we are launching today analyzes the experiences of eight Asian and five African countries. The writers explore crucial government roles in boosting and supporting mechanization, from import policies to promotion policies to public good policies. Today's launch will feature the book's editors, who will together present an overview, followed by two discussants. Let me now introduce our editors in the order of their remarks, and they are Xinxin Jiao, Deputy Division Director of the Development Strategy and Governance Division at IFPRI, Shaibo Shang, Senior Research Fellow at IFPRI and Chair Professor at the National School of Development at Peking University, and Hiro Takashima, Senior Research Fellow at IFPRI. Over to you, Xinxin. Yeah, th th this book is a joint effort of a big team with 30 authors uh, coming from many institutions and many developing countries. About uh, 15 authors are our developing countries uh, partners. Um, the book is motivated uh, by the growing interest in mechanization among governments and other stakeholders in Africa. So in the recent years, mechanization has been integrated into many agricultural development strategy documents, both at continental and the country levels. So here I gave uh, two quotations uh, from U Africa Union's Agenda 2063 and the Mapolo Declaration. In both documents, so Africa's government have set very ambitious goal to banish Han Ho by 2025. Next slide. Against this uh, high aspiration in Africa, this book tries to answer the following questions. First question is related to the demand for mechanization. That is, has demand reached the level necessary to justify such strong public support for mechanization. And then the second question actually relates to the supply side. So if the demand has been there, can that demand be made through the market only, particularly through hiring market? So related to this question on the supply side is whether there are market failures in mechanization market if they are what they are. So with possible market failure in the supply of mechanization, what government can do to support mechanization? More importantly, should we be concerned about repeat of government failure that happened in the 1970s for a premature push in mechanization in Sub-Saharan Africa? Next slide. So the book is structured into two parts. Part one, they want an updated theoretical framework. We use this framework mainly to synthesize the past lessons. The framework basically integrate the theory of farm system evolution with the theory of induced innovation hypothesis. So I'm going to elaborate this framework uh, later in next slides. Part two to part four are then devoted to country studies. So we cover eight Africa, eight Asian countries in part two and three, including four early adopters and four recent adopters. And then in part four, we cover five Africa countries. Next slide. 
So the theoretic framework, like I mentioned before, actually is a, a framework mainly emphasized, uh, early framework is mainly emphasized the demand issue. So the, uh, uh, the, <clears throat> the theory of farm system evolution actually is used to, to assess why uh, there's a demand for, uh, for power other than human power. So the demand for plowing with animals or tractors is a result of farming system evolution. So the first actually this uh, hypothesis was proposed by Bosserup in 1965 and then in Rosenberg's book, 1960. Both actually emphasize with the shortening of phyllo period, the traditional way to prepare land by burning become infeasible to remove emergent grasses between seasons. That lead to the labor requirement of land preparation become too high for manual hauling <coughs> uh, alone. So more importantly, Bothrop emphasized this evolution process is an indulgence process actually against a much broader, bigger development background. She emphasized two important factors. One, population growth. One is rising market demand. The rising market demand actually is a result of urbanization, rising income, rising op uh, export opportunity, of course, also the change of uh, market system and the development of infrastructure. So induced innovation uh, hypothesis actually is proposed by Hami Ruten. So actually once we combine this theory with farming system evolution theory, we can actually see they are very uh, relevant to each other. So induced innovation hypothesis emphasizes the relationship of adoption of modern technology, modern input with agriculture intensification, why labor saving technology become important, particularly through mechanization. More importantly, induced innovation in technology is accompanied by induced innovation in institutions, including agriculture R&D, change in uh, property right and uh, other land tenure uh, systems. So the graph I put it here is summarized from Bengali Pigol and uh, Binswanger's famous book published in 1987, Agriculture Mechanization and the Evolution of Farming System in Sub-South Africa. The graph actually gave a nice overview of sequential adoption of mechanization between the relationship of level of agriculture intensification, source of the power, and the function of to be mechanized. So when they wrote their book, majority area of sub-Saharan Africa actually were in the second kind of phase, means it's still in the way to tra transforming from low to medium phylo system. During that period, actually, the source of power is dominated by human. In some part of uh, Africa, animal become possible. And then when plowing is necessary, it has to be done by animal. However, what we are going to show in next slide is we basically argue the current Africa pretty much has moved to the third levels. So basically, so most of areas we can see the final system has to become disappeared. Next slide. So we, when we use, uh, when we measure the, <clears throat> the intensity of uh, land use, so the famous uh, indicator is Rosenberg's R value. So we develop this R value for three periods early 1960s, pretty much the period represent uh, Binswanger Pingali book period and in the recent two decades. It should be mentioned, 
So this is a national level. Actually, within each Africa country, there is huge heterogeneity. So we didn't put the, all Africa country here because it's too crowded. We put 13 countries here. So Rosenberg put the R value about 0.3 as a kind of cut, uh, uh, cut or threshold a point. So uh, around that point, pretty much plowing become necessary. So we can see the majority of Africa in the early uh, decade in the 60s, indeed, most of them, they are below 0.3 at the national level. And now most of them move above 0.3. In those countries, they are still below 0.3 at the national level. We know they have very diverse farming system, like highland in Kenya, and the serial zones in Zambia and Mozambique, they are highly accurate developed in annual crop system. So the rising R value is highly related to the population growth, like uh, Bosrap said, and also uh, urban share of population. So in the period of 50 years, in the last 50 years, Africa population actually in most of country uh, increased three to four times. So in, in the meantime, po urban population share more than double. So right now average uh, urban population share is about 40% for low middle income Africa countries. Few country actually with urban share below uh, 20%. And then, so also rising uh, non-farm employment uh, opportunity gave uh, <clears throat> pressure to uh, rural wages. Next slide. So the most important thing is supply side of my, uh, mechanization. When demand is there, actually the hiring market is a dominant uh, supply mechanism for smallholder dominant mechanization. This is not only because farmers are too small to buy machine, but also because those farmers, they can own machine, they also need to provide service to recap their machinery investment. However, supply demand cannot naturally made without uh, additional effort. There are market failures in, in machinery investment, also in uh, hiring service provision. I'm not going through the point. My colleague will talk about later. Next slide. So, so market failure actually highly relate to size of a tractor. So my colleague later will show actually in Africa, we all often see such large tractor on the right side of photo. And then in Asia, we also often uh, see actually much smaller machine. Next slide. So my, uh, up, <clears throat> the book basically also emphasized the role of public sector and the policy because of such a market failure. However, we emphasize we need to avoid repeating the historic fall, a failure. This concern is, is not baseless because at least dozen Africa countries have supported government-run uh, services or highly subsidized services. Therefore, we want to emphasize private sector-led market development. On the other side, the role of government should be mainly on the public good provision and uh, actually uh, to, pro to provide incentive for better practice. So the policy uh, to actually provide better incentive maybe subsidy is necessary. However, when the subsidy is necessary, how to minimize market distortion become very important because cherry-picked subsidy often create run sinking behavior and it compete with private sector rather than supporting it. Also, it's very important to emphasize migratory mechanizing services but they need a lot of support from the government. And then coordination among farmers, so farmers also is important. There's a role for uh, government to do. More importantly, 
how to pro promote better mechanization practice. Mechanization is not just labor saving to replace labor. How can mechanization also improve the farming practice to benefit farmers by higher year? In the meantime, also created a demand for tractor beyond primary flowing. So from that point of view, how to promote smaller tractor, affordable, acceptable, and suitable for local condition become crucial important. So I'm going to turn to my colleague Xiaobo Zhang, who is going to focus on Asian experiments. Thanks. Have you talked about the Asian experience? Let me first present one status fact. Next, please. So mechanization in Asia countries have taken off despite small farm size. So this figure is drawn from our book chapters. The horizontal line lists the number of countries uh, and also the average farm size. You can see for China, the average paddy farm is only 0.21 hectares. The largest one is Thailand, 3.1, about the same size as in Ghana. If compared to the US, the average farm size is 444 hectares. In general, farm size Asia, extremely small, also highly fragmented. However, if you look at the vertical lines, the two bars, one for the share of land preparation by tractors, the red line is the share of uh, paddy uh, production uh, harvest by combined harvesters, you can see there's not much difference across countries. Almost all the land are prepared by tractors and the combined harvesting also has taken off the share running from 20% to more than 70% across these countries. So this is really a puzzle. Uh, Pingali wrote a very famous review article. He reads a question land consolidation and the redesign of the rice land to form large contiguous fields are essential for the adoption of common uh, harvesters. Given the small farm land size in Asia, in the 80s, economists were really concerned about the scale up of uh, common harvesting. Next slide, please. However, if now in Asia, machinery is widely used in different stage of crop production, like a windmill, land preparation, uh, threshing, and the combine harvesting. So here I give uh, the numbers from our book. If you look at the pot killer ownership, actually it's ranging from very low level in India, 0.21%, to very high level uh, uh, Thailand, 26.5%. Even for Thailand, only one fourth of farmers own pot tillers. But as shown in the previous slides, more than 80% of farmers use power tillers or tractors for land preparation. So that means most farmers rely on high-end services for plowing. Let me use Myanmar as an example uh, to uh, illustrate uh, the, this point. So this graph showed uh, the use of uh, machinery for two-wheel tractors, two WTs, that means two-wheel tractors, uh, 4WT means four wheel tractors and the combine harvesting. So we divide the sample into three groups. One is small farms, less than five acres, middle-sized farms between five and 10 acres, large farms, uh, 10 acres or more. But if you look at the use of machineries for two tractors, four, tra uh, four tractors and the combine harvestings, there are not much difference across the three types of farms. If you look at ownership, only 1% of households owned either four-wheel tractors or combine harvesters. But if you look at it, their usage, the percentage is much higher, more than 85% for land preparation, uh, more than 50% for combine harvesting. So that means most farmers rely on hiring services. Next slide, please. So next, I use China as an example to illustrate how the uh, hair harvesting service work. So for the photo I, I took in Sichuan province, is if you look at the middle uh, map, that's in point B in central China. 
where do they come from? They come from point A in Jiangsu province. The distance is more than 1,000 miles about the distance between your city and Orlando in Florida. These guys travel in a group about on average about 10 trucks. They put the Kubota uh, Japanese made combat harvester on top of their trucks. So every uh, truck, there are about three or four operators. They travel in convoys. They're traveling up to eight months a year. On average, in our survey is six months. So the red show the, their route, travel route. You can see all over China. Because the large scale of operation, the cost dropped a lot. So on average, they only charge half of the cost of labor hiring, about $200 per hectare. So as a result, farmers definitely are willing to hire combine harvestings than hire laborers. The reason, there are many uh, reasons for traveling together. For example, they're easy to uh, cope with all kinds of uh, uh, on, uh, shocks, such as on payment issues, uh, repairing problems, uh, etc. Next slide, please. So what are the drivers of the rising uh, mechanization in Asia? One key factor is rising wages. Uh, so here, I also use Myanmar's example. Myanmar used to be a close country, uh, which wages were very low. Since 2010, it's opened up. Since it opened up in 2010, migration were loosened. People were allowed to travel to other countries uh, for, uh, for migrant work. And also there's a booming in the cities. So the mass migration also have uh, taken off. As a result, there was a labor shortage in agriculture production, in particular during the peak seasons. You can show, you can see the real wages have spiked up the last several years. For example, uh, between 2011 and 2013, wages increased by 8%. And between 2013 and 2016, wages increased by 32%. That is real wages. As uh, the farmers, all rice farmers all complain about uh, labor shortage. So in response to labor shortage, mechanization services have emerged. There are dealers everywhere. There, wherever there's road access, there are combine harvesters and the tractors. So this photo you can see the operators of combine harvester built this bridge to get access to a village. So they can uh, control this uh, access, get access to the market. In addition, uh, Myanmar has a very liberal uh, policy on the import of agricultural machinery. Uh, they don't charge any tariff on uh, machinery, whole machinery and uh, uh, parts. Thirdly, farmers can use land form seven in, uh, as a collateral to get bank loans with the interest rate between 12 and 14%. So in Myanmar land belong to the state, the farmers only have the user right. They get the land form seven as a proof of user right, but the government have an innovation to allow farmers to use land user right form as a collateral. This is a big uh, major innovation. So during our interviews, almost all the owners said they have access to bank loans uh, uh, through the land form seven. Mm. Next slide, please. So in conclude, so agriculture mechanization has taken off in Asia, uh, mainly through hiring service market, very active service market, despite very small farm size and high degree of land fragmentation, rating wages are a key driver behind the rapid mechanization. Rural road are generally very good in uh, rural Asia, uh, so they are very important for facilitating hiring market development and the spread of mechanization. Ability to produce uh, low price agricultural machinery domestically is very important. Almost all these countries uh, can produce tillers, threshers, and some even tractors at home. Some, for some countries which cannot produce, they have access to neighboring countries which can. So proximity to the neighboring countries is also important factor for tenor, tenor spillover 
uh, in uh, Asian countries. So let me stop here and turn over to my colleague here for African experience. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now we turn our attention to African experience. Um, here I will briefly uh, highlight the messages from five African countries with the specific focus on West African countries. Next slide, please. One of the key patterns in African country is that the uh, adoption of mechanization has been heterogeneous. For example, in Ghana and Nigeria, uh, adoption tractor has been higher in a serial-based system and where the rural wages are higher. And similarly in Tanzania, a different type of mechanization adoption has been growing in the different parts of the country. So this pattern suggests that the story of growing demand is more pronounced if you look at the subnational level. Next slide, please. Where mechanization has been adapted, it had significant effects in a number of dimensions. Uh, these include household income yield through combined harvesters, land cultivated, modern inputs, animal savings, and the labor displacement effect has been relatively insignificant. So again, these significant effects from mechanization suggest that the growth in demand is relatively robust. Next slide, please. Now we turn our attention to the supply side. Where the demand has been growing, it has been really the custom hiring service that are meeting this demand. In both Ghana and Nigeria, the share of uh, uh, farm households that are using tractors is much higher than their share of households, share of farm households that own tractors. And similarly, our book also highlighted how in Ethiopia, combined harvester service providers uh, provide migratory services and provide service in different locations at a different time of the year, depending on the harvesting season of the location. Next slide, please. So uh, many African countries realized uh, this potential of an importance of uh, mechanization service providers and uh, placed their growth as a, a core of the mechanization support efforts. However, the recent uh, experience in these countries also revealed some of the uh, uh, challenges that uh, in the existing uh, uh, service provision models. And Ghana's um, uh, experience under the first phase of Agricultural Mechanization Service Enterprise Center, AMSEC, uh, symbolizes some of these challenges. Under this program, uh, as in uh, many other countries, the government provided support uh, through uh, subsidized tractors. Uh, the, the centers uh, faced uh, various challenges, including uh, low machine utilization rate, uh, low profitability, and uh, as a result, many of them uh, could not uh, repay the loan they took from the government. The, the factors behind these challenges were uh, the short peak season with limited coverage and limited tractor use other than primary plowing and also requirement for uh, holding a large tractor fleet per center. And added to these challenges were insufficient supply in spare parts and repair and maintenance service, the lack of after sale support and the lack of skilled tractor operators. Then the frequent change in imported tractor brands also uh, constrained the long-term growth of the supply chain. As a result, and uh, uh, due to other factors, most service centers could not reach break-even utilization rate. Next slide, please. So is there still a viable uh, supply-side models, uh, service provision models? The experience in Nigeria uh, offers some insights. The study in Nigeria uh, uh, revealed that there are efficiency gaps between the government-selected service providers and other service providers that are uh, not directly targeted by the government. 
this latter type of service providers uh, found to earn uh, significantly higher revenues with uh, similar uh, cost with the government selected service providers. They also attain much higher utilization rate uh, throughout the year, despite uh, seasonality. So the experience in Nigeria revealed that uh, improving tractor market in general is important. And also uh, there is both the need and the scope for increasing the efficiency of the government selected service providers that the government closely work with. Next slide, please. Um, uh, and in Ghana, uh, for example, uh, uh, took on these uh, uh, lessons and uh, incorporated a number of reforms into the existing programs. Um, their uh, uh, experience in the phase two of AMSEC program uh, uh, are case in point. Under the phase two of AMSEC program that started in 2016 through the support of Brazilian government, um, for example, they uh, expanded the in inclusiveness of uh, eligible, uh, uh, eligible applicants by reducing the threshold level of uh, uh, number of tractors to be uh, carried. And they also added significant focus on developing the maintenance capacity and culture uh, through free tractor maintenance service, uh, provision of mobile workshop vans and uh, guaranteeing uh, supply for up to two years. And they also um, <clears throat> added focus on the uh, uh, building the knowledge and skills of the uh, service providers uh, by expanding the mandatory training provided by the public institutions. The program also uh, added more emphasis on multiple multifunctional use of tractors through complementary equipment and lastly, diversified tractor brand options. So these, this experience suggests that there are measures that the government can take that are both effective and feasible within the existing mechanization support policy and the program environments. Next slide, please. So in concluding, Mechanization in Africa has been driven by urbanization, increased food demand, and rising rural wages. And the important point is that the, the paradigm of mechanization has been shifting, and it has shifted in Africa as well, led by the farming system evolution with induced technological and institutional innovations. And the recent Asian experience offer lessons to Africa within this new paradigm. There are also challenges and opportunities that remain. For example, how can private sector's potentials be maximized? Uh, how can government address market failures while avoiding the government failures? And what more research can inform this process? And these questions cannot be resolved overnight. Our book really tried to contribute <clears throat> to a broader effort for searching better solutions toward mechanization in Africa. So thank you very much. And back to you, Katawa. Great. Thank you so much, Shinshin, Shaibo, and Hiro for that impressive overview of the book. A reminder to all of you tuning in that you can submit your brief questions on ifri.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, or by using the hashtag AskIfri on Twitter as we'll be coming to the Q&A session shortly. Let me now turn to our discussants. And up first is Jeffrey Mrema, who is a professor in the Department of Engineering Sciences and Technology at Sokoine University of Agriculture in Tanzania. Jeffrey, over to you. The book is on a particularly important area of agricultural development and one where there are big knowledge gaps. The history of agricultural mechanization in Sub-Saharan Africa is littered with many reports with differing recommendations and paradigm shifts. We therefore need to commend IFPRI for coming up with this book. This is particularly the case as the launch of this book coincides with the renewed policy and technical initiatives on agricultural mechanization by African Union, African countries through several pronouncements made since 2014 in the Malabo Declaration, Vision 2063, 
of the Africa Union, as well as the framework for sustainable culture mechanization in Africa, FSAMA, which was launched in 2018. Through analysis of the mechanism scenario in eight Asian five African countries, significant contribution to knowledge is made through detailed overview of development and status mechanization in the selected countries. We welcome this effort by IFPRI and concur with the observation that the book serves as a good precursor to future direction of efforts and research and development, as well as facilitating the development of new paradigms for academic analysis, especially in Africa. We, however, would have preferred a broader analysis involving different paradigms and perspectives rather than being confined to the one developed by Pingali in 1987, over 30 years ago. This is particularly the case since the Pingali paradigm mechanization has rather stagnated in Africa decline in many countries. So I think there's need to really look at that. One would prefer to see a comparison of the Pingali paradigms with the Giles statistics approach which measures progress in agricultural mechanization on the basis of the power availability per hectare, kilowatts per hectare, rather than the Pingali approach, which measures progress on the basis of bank factor or other factor, an anthropological indicator of the level of farming systems intensification developed when the farming system approach was involved in the 1970s. A poignant point in this regard is the fact that from 1990 to 2000, in all countries in Africa, directorates of agricultural mechanization engineering services have been established. These directorates are staffed mostly by agricultural and irrigation engineers and are responsible for all aspects of agricultural mechanization program implementation, including policy formulation. The staff of these directorates are steeped in the fundamentals of engineering sciences and what they read on progress in mechanization of other continents is measured in kilowatts per hour and not by the other factor. It's therefore important that we use terminology which most of those who are directly involved in mechanization program understand and send. In addition, of course, to the Giles and the Bengali approach. Another major difference, again, which we have to appreciate between Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa is that Asia had a long start in agricultural education, especially agricultural engineering. The first program started in India, for example, in 1942, long before even Britain, where the first programs were established in 1966 in Silso and Newcastle. And first agricultural engineering programs in Africa started just in, in, the, in Israel in 1969. Okay, and that is so in terms of capacity for managing mechanization, India has had, a, Asia has had a very head start compared to Africa. Another issue which is repeated several times in the book is one of public sector involvement in professional tractor hire services. While this was an issue of concern in the 1960s, by 1980s, most tractor hire services owned by the government had been privatized. So, and uh, even then, the public tractor houses owned only 10% of the tractor field in Sub-Saharan Africa, and 90% was private sector, in the private sector. The key issue is, in our opinion, is whether it is profitable viable to operate tractor hire services, even by private sector. And as the book rightly notes, this is quite difficult due to the short land preparation system common in most of Sub-Saharan Africa. Even in India, as seen us, this is not the case unless my services are involved, as we've seen in the slides, and as not a recently approved uh, framework for, for sustainable agriculture in Africa, this is a major challenge to mechanization in this continent. Other issues which, we need to, which have been raised in this book is the issue of large and small tractors. I think, again, we'll caution that since 1960s, we have had several waves of small tractors introduced in Sub-Saharan Africa. As noted in some summer reports and shown in the Tanzania chapter, small tractors have been successful where conditions allow, but they are not the panacea to the farm power issue in Africa. The second issue of language is the issue of drudgery. 
in the hand tool te technology common in most of Sub-Saharan Africa, which is greatly underplayed in this book and in most research by non-African researchers. The rallying call by the ASO on the, on the, in the Earth summer is sending the handhold to the museum by 2025. I would say many youths in Sub-Saharan who risk their lives crossing the Sahara and the Mediterranean Sea rather than being confined to an agriculture dominated by the handhold. So this is a priority to African countries to stop this migration out of the rural areas and out of, to, out of Africa. And to us, the key issue is not ownership of machinery and implements by the, mid, by the small and medium scale farmers, but, but one of efficient and affordable and effective mechanization services provision. There are cases where mechanization services provision has been efficiently provided by the public sector, and we see this in the tea estates, in sugar estates, in rice areas. But in many cases, the private sector has been more successful. And we should note that many countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, the volume of agricultural mechanization inputs imported or even available is so small to attract the private sector. So there is a big market failure there. We also need to worry about the success cases and projects like grain milling in the primary preparation in Kenya and Tanzania where We've been quite successful. I think we need to, I think the book focuses too much on the cases in Nigeria and Ghana. And I think the lastly, I would like to point out that following the approval of the F summer, the African Union has agreed to join hands with FAO and Africa was going to establish a network African mechanized information platform. And this is will be an information exchange platform and specifically to fulfill practitioners no aspects. And we'll have several components, a newsletter, discussion essays, webinars, and also where we can post uh, the relevant MSC PhD stations done in this project. In conclusion, let me commend Hilfri for this effort and all the authors for the chapters of this book. I hope they'll join up and you see disseminating their future publications and research findings on the Africa Mechanized Platform. And hopefully this book will also rekindle the interest of the African headquarters CGI centers in this area of agriculture mechanization. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Jeffrey, for your comments. Our final discussant is Thomas Daum, a research fellow at the Institute of Agricultural Science in the tropics at University of Honheim. Thomas, over to you. Yes, thanks a lot for the invitation. Um, first of all, congratulations. Um, this is an excellent book on an important topic. Uh, mechanization is back on the development agenda. Um, and this is after it was a more neglected topic from the 1980s onwards, in particular in Africa, which created like a huge empirical vacuum. Um, and the editors and many of the authors um, have slowly filled this empirical vacuum in the last couple of years with their papers, um, kind of paper by paper, piece by piece, just like solving a jigsaw puzzle. Um, now with this book, the puzzle is almost complete. So this is a very well done um, uh, book is great to build on this framework of these earlier frameworks on, on Pingala, Pingali and others. I think this is a good example of this idea of standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, and the authors very nicely demonstrate also the power of using cross-country learning with these different case studies, uh, by the way, in all sorts of directions. Um, I would like to highlight three major findings. If we could move to the next slide. So in the book, uh, the authors highlight the importance of having functional mechanization higher markets. And they also point that there may be some challenges to, to achieve this. Um, however, reaching these markets or enabling them, I think really is key. And we also show this in our research. Um, having such in institutional solutions just is key to make mechanization accessible for smallholder farmers um, and also for tractor owners to reach economics of scales. Uh, we have studied such um, solutions in Zambia, for example, where they are organized around medium scale farmers, usually finding large positive effects for smallholder farmers. Uh, however, we also find that tractor owners often face very um, mixed uh, profitability when offering such services uh, with internal rates of returns fluctuating very much, which is to a large extent because of the patchy enabling environment 
that can lead to frequent breakdowns, for example. Also, we find that such markets are often constrained by transaction costs. Um, and Xiaobo has highlighted this, uh, showing these infrastructural challenges. Um, this makes it very difficult for tractor owners to work with some farmers. Working with smallholder farmers becomes very tedious at times. Um, so in this example, intermediaries were essential to pool farmers together to reduce transaction costs. Um, the high transaction costs, I think, also highlight the potential of using digital solutions. Uh, for example, Uber for Tractors ideas um, that are pioneered in Nigeria, for example, by Hello Tractor. Um, we have studied such solutions, finding uh, a great potential, but also showing that there are no silver bullets for smallholder mechanization. Um, having the idea that the smallholder farmers tap on their smartphones and then the tractors kind of magically appear, um, this is just not how it works. They also struggle with the thorny challenges of rural markets. Um, but this is nevertheless a, a, an, an, an avenue that we should pursue further. Uh, we also find that such solutions may be more useful for large-scale migratory service providers who constantly enter uncharted territory uh, rather than a tractor owner who just focuses on the neighborhood. Next slide, please. Uh, the book, kind of en passant, uh, is busting a lot of myths and helps to understand the effects of mechanization. For example, this idea that it just displaces labor is, is simply not true, and they show this greatly. Uh, whenever there is a real demand for mechanization, this doesn't happen. We also find this in Zambia and other countries that, in fact, often it creates employment. For example, in Zambia, we find that as area is expanded, um, and farmers become richer, they also require more labor in subsequent farming steps like harvesting. Um, and often they replace family labor, including child labor, um, with hired labor. Uh, but not everything is positive. There are also challenges with mechanization, and I think we should not um, ignore them. For example, having this land expansion can lead to deforestation, uh, conversion of savanna land, um, using mechanization can lead to soil erosion. Uh, there's this big issue of having access of uh, women to mechanization. All of these things I think we have to uh, pay attention to. Now, the good thing is that most of these aspects can be minimized with complementary policies. So we can harness the potential of mechanization uh, while minimizing some of these risks uh, with having good policies. I think a main finding of the, the book is that governments play a critical role in creating an enabling environment. This is a quote from the book. And indeed, this is what we have found across the world. Uh, and we did some historical studies on mechanization efforts in the US and Germany early on. Um, always governments played a critical role. Um, now, um, there may be a political economy issue that governments in many African countries tend to focus on providing private goods, uh, which is politically attractive, but often fails and is less efficient, as Hiro has also shown. Um, so here more work is needed on better understanding how to channel government's attention towards um, uh, establishing this enabling environment, focusing on public goods uh, and focusing on the enabling environment. Here I have a picture from Germany, where I come from, uh, where they very early on heavily invested, for example, in knowledge and skills development. They had these Doyla schools that initially uh, traveled throughout the countries as kind of school caravans, uh, training tractor owners, operators, and technicians. Um, this is just one of the examples um, that is key for creating an enabling environment. Um, overall, this is probably where most of the research questions are still open. How to create this enabling environment, uh, when to start this, uh, how to best involve private sector, third sector, should we focus on just tractors or also animal traction? Uh, all of these questions are open. Also, how can we create the right incentives for uh, mechanization service markets? Uh, how can we reduce transaction costs? Uh, how can we nudge medium-scale farmers, which are on the rise in Africa, uh, to offer services to smallholder farmers? Which role do digital solutions play? Um, all of these things are still open for discussion. So to conclude, the book is doing a great job to 
filling this empirical vacuum uh, on mechanization, um, but we cannot rest yet. There's still a lot of work to done, uh, but overall, thanks a lot for this book. It should be uh, uh, of high relevance for anyone who is interested in agricultural development. Thanks a lot. Great, thank you very much, Thomas. We have just a few minutes remaining for our Q&A session, so let me jump right in. Uh, a question for you, Jaibo and Hiro, um, coming in from our audience is, to what extent does population density play a role in the feasibility of the rental servicing market for migratory mechanization? Are lack of roads, trucks an issue? Yeah, the, the important aspect is, yeah, the, the rising population density is really, uh, uh, one of the driver of uh, intensification and uh, growing demand for mechanization. So, um, uh, so you kind of a uh, um, mechanization is not just for large uh, farm setting, but what is becoming more and more relevant for Asia and Africa is uh, how uh, mechanization can help uh, areas where smallholders dominate. And uh, I, I, yes, I think uh, as Shabo emphasized, uh, the infrastructure is, is uh, very much a uh, um, uh, challenge, uh, especially in Africa, uh, for uh, you know, providing uh, um, uh, more efficient migratory services. Great, thank you. Shabo, did you want to come in on that? Uh, yes, I agree with the uh, hero. And then the fundamental factor is uh, reading labor cost. Uh, once the labor cost goes up, farmers have to rely more on uh, hiring services. Uh, so I think that's the most important factor. Urbanization just showed there's many more job opportunities in the cities. Young people migrate to cities. As a result, during the harvest seasons, you can, farmers cannot find young people to work on the farm. So they have to seek other options. I think this provides opportunity. And then the road is an enabling factor. With better road connections, the hiring services can travel far uh, places, which in turn reduce the cost of the operation. And I think the infrastructure development is uh, very important. Great, thank you. And Xinxin, a question for you. Uh, looking at the book in its entirety, how can national policymakers and the development community benefit from it? Can it be adapted to local contexts and used for further research? Actually, this is a very good question. So mechanization at this moment in Africa actually is very location specific. It's very hard even to have a national strategy for the whole country. So like Jefferson said, so actually cross country, within country, there are such a diverse actually farming system, a condition for possibility to adopt different type of machinery. So that at the currently we see the huge knowledge gap. So what we see is what uh, Africa government want, but what we see is a lack of knowledge how to achieve this ambitious goal. So this uh, to fill the knowledge gap, I think government can play a crucial role. So basically, so for those uh, producing uh, machinery and Africa country import from, and then and those local uh, scientists and uh, small manufacturer, how can government actually facilitate their dialogue? So basically bring knowledge from uh, local people to the machine uh, manufacturer such that actually the machine can be produced in a way uh, suitable to Africa, but also at a low cost. I think that's a crucial role a government can play. Thanks. Thank you, Shenzhen. Uh, Thomas, for you, a question on what are the research needs for African mechanization? And we have a question from Julie Howard at CSIS. Uh, do you have any comments on the Hello Tractor experience in Africa? Is there any potential there? Are there any challenge? What are the challenges? Mm -hmm. Thanks a lot for these two great questions. Uh, so I think the research needs are big. There's still um, a lot to understand about really how to create this enabling environment, 
um, and how to do this cheaply. Also, when to start that? Is this something that all countries in Africa should focus on? Um, they are competing demands, budgets are limited. So should all countries now start to um, focus on uh, promoting mechanization? Where should they focus on animal traction? Um, all of these things have to be understood more carefully. Um, also, which complementary policies are needed? Um, for example, to avoid deforestation, maybe uh, land use policies are extremely important to protect uh, vulnerable uh, uh, areas, for example. Also, how to make sure that women have access to mechanization, which is a constraint in many countries. Um, and there are a lot of technological questions also and economic questions um, still going on, as Choffi also has pointed out. So there is a lot to do. Um, regarding the second question on Hello Tractor, I do think there is much potential. Um, but I think what our case studies show is that it doesn't work as much as an Uber technology as we may think of that smallholder farmers are in the village and they tap on the phone and then the tractor appears. Um, it's rather tractor owners who benefit from this. They have their tractors uh, fitted with a GPS device that makes it much easier for them to control the tractor operators, um, which is also a way to reduce transaction costs and enable these migratory service markets that Xiaobo and Xingxian also pointed out. Um, so they greatly benefit, but uh, I'm more unsure how smallholder farmers indeed benefit from this technology so far. Um, they utilize booking agents to pool smallholder farmers together, um, which seems to work very well. Um, but this is outside of the digital idea of, of, of this tool. Um, so more work is needed on that also. Thank you. Uh, Jeffrey, a question for you. We only have a couple minutes remaining, but can you, um, in your opinion, why does it seem like some African politicians and policymakers are intervening in track to hire schemes through the provision of government grants? Any thoughts on that? Not only an African phenomenon itself, a phenomenon of all politicians, and they like to intervene wherever they see that uh, people are suffering. And Africa is the disadvantage that we are the only continent where a large part of our land is cultivated by the handhold. Asia, for example, a large part of the land is cultivated, has been cultivated by, by animal traction for years. We tried in tractorization in the 60s, we failed, and we were told because of government intervention. Then the World Bank and other donors came and said we should focus on animal traction. They came in, started in lots of animal traction networks, Eastern Africa, Western Africa. But by the end of the century, uh, 2000, there were all the graveyards of animal traction equipment because this was not a, a way forward. And now when we went to uh, in 2008, uh, the FAO and FAO organized the Global Agro-Industry Conference in India. And the ministers of Africa met the ministers of Asia. And they realized, they were told by the Asian counterparts, please don't listen to this talk of not, not intervening. We, we succeeded because we intervened. And the, the example for that you can see last week in India, these farmers were all demonstrating closing in on New Delhi because the government was trying to cut down on their, on their subsidies. So this is not an African phenomenon. It's even Asia, they're subsidizing, but they're subs providing smart subsidies. What you can say, we advise the Africans to also provide smart subsidies to their mechanization schemes. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're out of time, but I want to give Shaiba one final question. Um, given the small farm sizes, how do farmers coordinate among themselves and with service providers? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, first, farmers have incentive to work together. I think about it in China, it's not profitable to produce rice or wheat uh, using such a, uh, you know, such small uh, plot. So they have incentive to work together to produce the same uh, type of rice and so, as, so that they can harvest uh, at the same time. So they are normally in villages, some senior leaders, uh, seniors will coordinate uh, the, the plant, uh, planting and the harvesting. So the intermediaries from the farmer side. Also their agents work uh, for the service providers. So they charge a fee for the service, the intermediaries. Uh, finally, there are repeated transactions. Once the service providers 
provide the service for a village, they will uh, have the contact. So next time they will contact the village beforehand, before the harvesting. As I said earlier, they're working a group, they have cooperatives. One person is in charge of uh, this, the contact. So they have uh, many ways to do the coordination. Great, thank you so much, Shaibo. And thank you to all of our speakers and discussants for joining us and to you, our audience, for joining us for what was a fascinating session. I do invite everyone to join us tomorrow at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for a book launch on Resetting the Table, Straight Talk About the Food We Grow and Eat. And with that, have a lovely day.